Now, you may not know this about me. Many of you know this about me, but you may not know. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a Notre Dame fan. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a diehard Notre Dame fan. Um, there may be some kind of mental illness associated with my love of Notre Dame. Uh, those of you who are not Notre Dame fans would definitely agree with that. I watched my first Notre Dame game, football game, when I was three months old, sitting on my father's knee. And uh, every Saturday since then, I, that's exactly what I've done. Not necessarily on my father's knee, but uh, I've watched Notre Dame games pretty much every... I, I criticized my brother for getting married on a Saturday when Notre Dame was playing Purdue. How could you do that? Um, I moved away from home at age 18 to go to Indiana State uh, to study... Uh, theater, actually, to study to be an actor, and, and uh, even when I moved away from home, pretty much every Saturday, my dad and I call each other. We call each other first thing in the morning, hey, what do you think about today's game? How's it going to go? Uh, that afternoon, we call each other during the game, I can't believe he did that, I can't believe, you know, and, and uh, we, <laughs> it's, it's a minor obsession. <laughs> um, and now that I live closer to home, uh, closer to Crown Point, I go down to Crown Point and pick up my dad and bring him up. And uh, we watch the games together on Saturday afternoons when we're available. We're not talking about some kind of casual interest. We are talking about a full-blown mouth-foaming-at-the-mouth obsession with Notre Dame football. Living and breathing and talking Notre Dame. Well, there's a famous story about Notre Dame football from 1920. Newt Rockney said the greatest player he ever coached was that man, George Gipp. Uh, Gipp contracted strep throat in Notre Dame's last game of the 1920 season against Northwestern. In the weeks that followed, the infection got worse, and he was confined to a hospital bed at St. Joseph's Hospital in South Bend, Indiana. Rockney went to visit George Gipp on the evening of December 13, 1920, just hours before he passed away at the age of 25. Before he died, Gipp asked Rockney to make a promise to him. It was a promise that would take eight years to fulfill. In 1928, Rockney's Fighting Irish had lost two of its first six games, and there were three games to go, Army, Carnegie Tech, and USC. Rock knew that if his team could upset Army at Yankee Stadium, they could avoid a losing record. His fiercest critics claimed that he had lost his touch and that the magic was gone. The week of the Army game, he thought, and he told friends, that he thought that they could beat Army. After pregame warm-ups, Rockney huddled up his players in the locker room, and he started telling his players about George Gipp. And they did not know him, but they knew of him because he was the greatest player of his time. Rockney told his team of Gipp's final wish. This is what George Gipp told Newt Rockney. I've got to go, Rock. It's all right. I'm not afraid. Sometime, Rock, when the team is up against it, when things are wrong and the brakes are beating the boys, tell them to go in there with all they've got, and win just one for the Gipper. Ooh, I get chills. I don't know where I'll be then, Rock, but I'll know about it, and I'll be, I'll be happy. Notre Dame went on that day to beat Army 12-6. to six. Cheer, cheer for old Notre Dame. Oh, man, I get it. Oh. Well, this morning, we are going to finish our sermon series on the book of 1 John. We're going to bring it all to an end now. Uh, I told the story of win one for the Gipper uh, as a way of introducing this morning's sermon. Those were George Gipp's final instructions to Newt Rockney. 
And today's passage of Scripture is John's final instructions in this first letter. He did go on to write more, but this is the end of the first letter. This is the end of 1 John, and these are his final instructions to the Christians he was writing to. These are the final things that John wants us to think about as we live our lives. There are three areas of instruction that we're going to focus on this morning, three things that we're going to talk about. And just to let you know where we're going on Sunday mornings, today we're going to finish with 1 John. Next week we'll talk about finding ourselves in the story of Christmas. I'm very excited about the sermon that I'm going to preach next Sunday. It's where are you, who are you in the story of Christmas. Then on the last Sunday of the year, I'm going to preach the same sermon I I have preached the last Sunday of every year for about the past eight years. I'm going to preach a sermon called The Biblical Plan of Salvation and what it means and how we are saved. And then we have a guest preacher, Stephen Massey. He's going to preach the first Sunday in January, and uh, looking forward to that. He's going to bring the word that day, uh, see what he's learned in his first semester of Bible college. So, uh, and then after that, we're going to talk about stewardship for the final three weeks of January. So that's where we're going, but let's first of all talk about where we are and look at the first area of instruction that John has for us today. Uh, If you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. 1 John 5, 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. The first area of instruction that John has for us is in the area of prayer. Now, prayer is one of those things that can be really difficult in our lives, in our faith journey, in our walk with Christ, in this marathon of the Christian life that we are running. Prayer can be sometimes mysterious. It can be sometimes difficult to understand. And though we may not understand everything there is to know about prayer, we know that we are commanded to pray. John says in this passage that he is writing to the Christians of his day so that they would have confidence in approaching God. One of the things we need to know about prayer is that we can do just that. We can approach God with confidence. This theme of confidence before God appears a couple of different places in the New Testament. In Ephesians 3.12, Paul says that in Christ and through faith in Christ, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. In Hebrews 4:14 through 16, the author says that Christ is our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, we should approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We talked about several weeks ago in 1 John chapter 3, verse 21, says that we can have confidence before God because we know that we belong to the truth. And now he is telling his audience that they can have confidence before God because they have eternal life through their faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Confidence before God. Now that sounds kind of strange. That sounds kind of almost pretentious, almost, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of, almost uh, arrogant, almost proud of, how can I approach God with confidence? This is, he is the creator of the world. He is the creator of the universe. He is the almighty. He is the powerful one. He is the, he is God. How can I, Sean, little old Sean, approach God with confidence? How can I come before him with confidence? It's not arrogance. It's not pride. It's confidence. There is a difference. 
Well, what, what can we be confident about? You look at verses 14 and 15. Christians can be confident in the fact that God hears us. John says that if Christians will ask anything according to God's will, God will hear them. Now, how many times have you ever watched a TV show or, or a movie and, and someone comes to the end of their rope and they hit their knees before God and they, they fall down before God and say, Oh God, I know you're really, really busy, but if you could just give me this one thing or if you could just come through in this one area of need, you know, you hear people say that. I know you're really busy. It seems like the kind of typical TV or movie prayer. It's like they're thinking that God has more important things to do than to listen to their prayer, than to listen to people. And that God is so limited that he can't possibly keep the universe going and listen to the prayers of all the people praying at the same time. John is telling us, though, that the exact opposite is true. God does hear all the prayers of his people. He hears all the prayers of all who have called on Jesus for salvation and have been saved by his blood. He hears the prayers of his people who pray according to his will. But what is his will? I think that the Bible gives us some clues about the will of God. First of all, I believe that God hears the prayers of his people that are prayed for someone else's salvation. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that it is God's will that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That God doesn't want anyone to spend eternity separated from him. If you pray specifically for someone to become a Christian by believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized, I believe that God hears that prayer. I believe that God hears all the prayers for our needs to be met. I believe that that is a prayer that God hears. Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. He talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount that God knows our needs and he will always provide for the needs of his people. When Shannon and I sit down with Jonathan at the end of the day and we say our nighttime prayer with him, I try and pray the same thing every day because I try and keep it in the forefront of my mind. I say, God, thank you for providing for our needs. Thank you for taking such good care of us. And we know that you'll continue to provide for our needs. And it's not because we're so special. It's not because, you know, I'm God's little cheerleader here on earth, up on the stage every week, you know, telling people about Jesus. It's not because, you know, I'm a Notre Dame fan. Um, the reason I know that God says, that, that God will provide for my needs is because, A, he always has, and B, he says he will. God has always taken care of us. God has always provided for our needs. And and, and <laughs> the problem is, uh, is that uh, my understanding of needs it's not always the same understanding of, uh, that God's understanding of my needs is. I have a warm roof over my head. I have clothes that I can wear. I have a car that I can drive to my job. I have a job. Uh, God has taken such good care of me. He has provided for my needs. Now, again, our understanding of need may be a little different than God's understanding of need. You might think that you need a new high-definition television or a new Mercedes-Benz or a new vacation home in Hawaii I can't blame you for needing that, but, uh, <laughs> but God knows what our true needs are. And God hears the prayer when we pray for him to provide for our needs. I also believe that God hears all of our prayers for forgiveness. John says that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we will confess the fact that we are sinners, if we will come before God and say, Father God, I am a sinner. And I need your mercy and I need your grace. It is God's will that we are forgiven. And I am confident that he hears our prayers of confession and our pleas for forgiveness. The second area of construction that John has for us is the area of sin. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. 
If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Wow. (laughs) There's a lot uh, of difficult things to try and understand that passage. We're going to talk about them for just a minute. He wants to make sure, John wants to make sure that we understand what sin is and how we should deal with it. He says that there is a sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. What in the world is he talking about? Sin that leads to death, sin that does not lead to death? Now the Roman Catholic understanding of this verse has always been to break down sin into two categories. There are pardonable sins and there are mortal sins. That's where the seven deadly sins come from. If you commit a mortal sin, then the priest prescribes some kind of penance uh, for you to do in order to atone for the sin. Now there are a couple problems with that. First, the, first of all, nowhere in the Bible does it say that any kind of work can atone for sin. Even here in 1 John, we read that only the blood of Jesus can atone for our sins. Chapter 4, verse 10 says, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 2, 2 says that He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. You cannot earn salvation. And you cannot earn forgiveness by works of penance. It is only through the blood of Jesus that we can have our sins forgiven. It is only through Christ's blood that our sins can be forgiven. The other problem with the traditional Roman Catholic understanding of this concept of mortal sin is the Bible tells us that all sins are mortal sins. Paul in Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible does not make any distinction between sins. It says that all sin leads to death and eternal separation from God and hell. I have no idea. I will be perfectly honest. I have no idea what John is talking about when he talks about the sin that leads to death. But I went to some commentaries to see what they said. So what kind of sin leads to death and what kind of sin does not lead to death? We're going to talk about that in just a second. But I want to tell you a little story. When I was a child, when I was just a little Sean, I was absolutely terrified of going to hell. I believe in hell. I believe that hell is a reality. I believe that people who die apart from Jesus Christ, no matter how good of a life they have lived, that people who die in their sins apart from Jesus Christ go to hell. And I'm sorry to say it, and and I know a lot of preachers won't talk about hell uh, because it's not politically correct and it's not nice and it doesn't scratch the ears of people and make them feel all good and warm and fuzzy, but... Folks, hell is a reality, and people who die apart from Jesus Christ go there. And our job as a church, when we talk about our mission statement, love God, love others, spread the gospel, that's what we're talking about, is depopulating hell, keeping people out of hell. Not through our works, not through our abilities, uh, but through uh, the power of Jesus Christ working in his people, the Holy Spirit working on people to convict them of their need uh, for a Savior. And our job is to tell people how to Uh, avoid hell and that is through Jesus Christ spreading the gospel but when I was a kid I was positively mortified 
I was so anxious about it that I made my parents allow me to be baptized when I was eight years old. There was no way they were going to talk me out of it. My mom told me. She's like, there's no way. You were determined that you were going to be baptized. I was going to be baptized. I was going to be saved because there was no way that I was going to go to hell. So on a cold Tuesday night in December of, 19, of 1981, I stood in the baptistry at the First Christian Church of Crown Point, Indiana, and John Starr baptized me into Christ. It was about 27 years ago this last week. Uh, we had to do it on a Tuesday night because my sister had strep throat or something like that, and uh, so we did it on a Tuesday night, and there I was in the nice warm waters of the baptistry, kind of like that one up there. Well, that's when my journey of faith began. Began. That's when I started on this marathon. That's when I started on this journey of faith. So what about all this sin that leads to death business? What are we talking about? Are we talking about uh, being afraid of going to hell? And, and, and are we talking about uh, forgiveness and, and salvation? Yeah. The commentaries I checked out both said the same thing. If you remember, a couple weeks ago, David uh, Herbert, our youth minister, preached a sermon on 1 John uh, chapter 5, uh, verses uh, starting in the first verse. And uh, this is what he talked about. He said, Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then in verse 5 it says, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. David talked about faith and the importance of faith that week. And, and, and here in 1 John 5, we see that that is the truth, that faith is absolutely essential to salvation. The sin that leads to death is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. John is talking about faith in this passage as he does throughout his gospel. To deny, to deny that Jesus is God's Son and to reject Him as your Savior is to have all of your sins, every sin that you've ever committed, from being a wee little person uh, to uh, your dying day, to reject Jesus as your Savior is to have all your sins left unforgiven. And there is no hope in that. There is nothing but sin and death. Uh, there's nothing but death and hell. And that is the sin that leads to death. Not physical death, but eternal death. All sin leads to death. But all sin can be forgiven except what Jesus called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, We've heard of that before, and we may be wondering, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Maybe you've heard of it, but you don't know exactly what it means. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do? Two weeks ago, David read that the Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus is God's Son. To commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to call the Holy Spirit a liar, and to declare that Jesus is not the Son of God, the only Savior of the world. That's the only sin that cannot be forgiven, the sin of denying Jesus Christ. That sin results in all of your sins being left unforgiven, and that equals eternal death and separation from God in hell. We are to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that they would not fall into temptation and commit sin. We need to pray uh, for one another that God would deliver us from evil. We need to pray that, for, we need to pray that for each other uh, that we will live morally pure lives of holiness before the Father. His expectation is high. God has high expectations for his people. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. Look at what verse 18 says. He wrote, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. How many of you uh, believe that you're born of God? How many of you continue to sin? Now, wait a minute. What did John just say? That's scary stuff. What is he talking about? What does that mean? 
How many of us live up to that, that we do not continue to sin? I don't know anyone who does. I know some people who think they do. But I got news for them. We know that if we do sin, we can confess that sin and God will forgive it. First John uh, chapter 1 talks about that, that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. Praise God for the forgiveness that only Jesus can bring. Because only Jesus can bring that forgiveness. Only Jesus can offer you the gift of salvation. Only Jesus can offer you the gift of eternal life. Only Jesus can save you from your sins. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. Well, John closes this last letter, this letter with last instruction. Instructions about idols. He simply says, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I think of this kind of like a mother leaving her children home with the babysitter. All along the way, she's giving instructions as she's getting ready to go out. Okay, here's the number where we're going to be. Here's the number for poison control. Here's the number for 911. And she's going over all the instructions. If you need us, call us on the cell phone. And giving all these final instructions. And then the last thing, the last thing she says as she's getting ready to go out the door, it's not an instruction for the babysitter. It's that final instruction for the children. What does she say? <laughs> you said it before. Be good. Children, be good. For the love of Pete, be good. We like this babysitter. We want her to come back. Be good. This is John. Just about ready to finish. And one last thing comes to mind. And it is so important. Keep yourselves from idols. I like what Augustine said about idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Idolatry is often thought of something as the ancient cultures did. You know, the people of the Bible re read about their idols of stone and, and metal and gold and things like that. We read about the, the uh, people of Israel in the book of Exodus, and they had uh, Aaron fashion them a, a golden calf, and they bowed down and they worshiped this golden calf, saying, this is the, our God who led us out of Egypt. <laughs> but you know what? There are some examples of modern-day idolatry. Listen to these. There are, there are actually people who worship crawling creatures today. In a museum in Egypt, there is a monument to the scarab beetle. The Philistines worship flies. Hindus today won't swat a fly lest it be an ancestor of their paying for wrongs. Today, you will find that there are 330 million gods of the Hindus, eight gods for every person. In Thailand, there are 20,000 Buddhist temples. In one, there is supposedly a two-inch tooth supposedly saved from Buddha's funeral. In China, a Buddhist statue actually fell on a man, and the family sued the Buddhas in the temple, and it was found guilty, and it and 14 other statues were actually beheaded. Idolatry is actually rampant, yeah, idolatry is rampant in our world. The Roman Catholic Church has relics. Mary's hair, Mary's wedding ring, Mary's holy girdle, the last supper basin, the burial cloth of Jesus, the lance which struck, stuck in his side, actual footprints of Jesus, and as for John the Baptist, three shoulder blades, four legs, five arms, and 50 index fingers that supposedly pointed and said, Behold, thou art the Lamb of God. Now someone said that the God of the last half of the 20th century was materialism. Ooh. Materialism. Is that an idol? Is materialism idolatry? The Bible says that greed is idolatry. Look at our economic situation in our world right now. What has greed brought us? What has consumerism bought, brought us? What has materialism brought us? 
Lots and lots of debt and lots of companies going under. I cannot think of another generation that has spent more of their resources and time to accumulate more stuff than we do today. It is the reason many people go to school or choose the kind of work they do to get bigger and better and nicer. This is from a devotional from June 14, 1989 called Today in the Word. This is in 1989. Though we do not face a pantheon of false gods like the Israelites did, we face pressures from a pantheon of false values. Materialism, love of leisure, sensuality, worship of self, security, and many others. The second commandment deals with idols. This may be something that most of us can't relate to unless we include life goals that revolve around something other than God himself. What is the object of our affections, our efforts, and our attention? Where does the majority of our time go? On what do we spend the greatest amount of our resources? We have idols in our worlds, my friend. We have idols in our world. And Christians are just as guilty of bowing down to them and worshiping them. I've heard it said that anything that comes between you and God is an idol. Anything that in your life that is more important than God is an idol. It may be food, it may be sex, it may be pleasure, it may be money, things, family, entertainment, alcohol, the internet. Uh-oh. <laughs> the internet. How many of you spend some time on the internet? I do. <laughs> how many of you spend a little bit of time on the internet? I, how many of you spend a lot of time on the internet? I do. Could that be an idol? Anything that comes between you and God is an idol. We have idols. They may not be made of stone or metal, but they are real, and they threaten our relationship with God. So just remember John's final instruction in this book. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. When I was in high school, way back when, and every day it seems further and further away, when I was in high school way back when, my mother had a command for me. A one-word command. Whenever I left the house, whenever I went out with my friends, whenever I went out with a girl, which wasn't very often, but whenever I went out, my mom yelled the same thing at me as I walked out the door. She yelled, think. Only she said it, think. For the love of Pete, think. Please, please, think. That was her command to me. Even when I went away to college and I'd come home for the weekend, as soon as I left, as I was walking out the door, she would yell, think. That was her final instructions to me. And in fact, uh, when we had a baby shower for Shannon, they had little baby bottles and people wrote different things on the baby bottles, like kind of instructions for Jonathan, uh, little uh, words of encouragement and things like that. You know what my mom wrote? Think. For, I mean, for my baby. And, and so I just know that as he gets older, he is going to hear the same instruction that I heard, that final instruction to think. Today we have seen John's final instructions in his first letter. And I know that I have learned quite a bit from this study of 1 John and, and going over it again, and I hope that you have too. And as, I, as we close this morning, I just want to emphasize what John says in this passage about sin. Sin is real. And like I said before, hell is real. The wages of sin is death an eternal separation from God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you have never accepted, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are in grave danger. You are in real danger of going to hell. If you have never put your faith and trust in Christ, if you have never accepted His offer of salvation, then I'm sorry to say it, 
and you're going to hell. And that's the truth. And there is nothing that I want less. There, I, I, I don't know how to say that. I don't want to mess that up. There's nothing that scares me more. There's nothing that breaks my heart more. And I know that there's nothing that breaks God's heart more than to see people that he loves. And God loves you tremendously. God loves you so very, very much that he sent Jesus. In fact, uh, there's a song by Michael Card called Could It Be? And the question that he asks is, could it be that you would really rather die than live without us? And that's a question he asks of God. Could it be that you would really rather die than live without us? And the answer to that question is yes. That God would come to earth as a little baby, and we celebrate this time of year at Christmas time, that God would come to earth and he would rather die on the cross and suffer tremendously than to live without you forever. That's what he did. That's the gift of salvation that God offers you. He gives you a lifetime to make that choice. He, he doesn't make any guarantees about how long that lifetime is, but he gives you a lifetime to, make the, to get the opportunity to accept Jesus as your Savior. This morning may be that day. This hour may be that hour. This minute may be that minute. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, we offer you that opportunity now. The Bible talks about a plan of salvation, and it's very simple. You've got to believe. You have to believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior and that he died for your sins. You've got to repent. To repent means to turn from sin and turn to God. You've got to confess. You've got to, with your mouth, confess that you believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son and that he died for your sins. And you've got to be baptized. You've got to submit to Christ's command to be baptized and in Matthew 28, uh, in the Great Commission, Jesus said, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He commanded that all nations be baptized, and that's what we want for you. We want you to put your faith in Jesus. We want you to repent. We want you to confess. We want you to be baptized. We want you to go on to live a new life with God's Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. If you've never done those things, then we offer the invitation now, right now. The praise team's going to come and lead a song. And if you're ready to make that decision, if you're ready to come forward today and receive Jesus as your Savior, we invite you to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the instructions that John gives us. There's something in there for everybody, whether it's prayer, whether it's sin, and avoiding sin, whether it's just keeping ourselves from idols. There are idols in our world. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to heed the instructions that John has for us. I pray today for those who've never accepted Jesus. I pray for those who have not yet repented from sin and given their lives to Christ. I pray that today, God, may be the day. It might be the day that they begin a new walk with you. Keep us strong. Keep us faithful. Help us walk in the newness of life each day. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.